This morning's scripture reading is taken from Luke chapter 9, verses 1 to 27. Luke chapter 19, sorry, verses 1 to 27. I'm reading from the ESV. Luke chapter 19, verse 1. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable, because he was near to Jerusalem, and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, and he might know what they had gained by doing business. They first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And am I coming? I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you, that to everyone who has, more will be given. But for the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine, 
who do not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. This is God's word. Thanks to Jong for reading the word to us. Uh, as we prepare to come to the word, let's pray together and prepare our hearts to receive from God. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we come to you as a needy people. We come, uh, we pray that you would open our hearts to you. We ask that you would lay them there. Uh, we pray that you would expose our hearts and that you would show us our need for you. Uh, Father, we pray that your spirit would take your word and press it deep into our hearts to, that might, so that we would respond to you uh, with hearts made alive by your spirit, with hearts full of faith and trust in your son, Jesus Christ. We pray this in His name. Amen. Uh, I have a helper who works uh, in my home. Uh, she's been with us for quite a, quite a number of years now, I think about eight or nine years now. And over the past uh, week or so, uh, our helper, Elizabeth, that's her name, has been uh, very anxious and worried. Uh, she's been unable to contact her family because in her country, the internet has been turned off. Uh, the phone lines have been disconnected, so she can't, have, uh, she can't call them on mobile phone either. Uh, it, it, as you can imagine, her, her, as, as you would have guessed, she lives, her, her family lives in Myanmar. And because of all that's happened over the past week or so, uh, she's in great uh, anxiety over the well-being of her family. And, and I tell this little story to help us to realize that there is a very human face and there is a human cost to political unrest. I think we hear of coups in distant lands, and sometimes the news can seem a bit abstract to us. But, but then we, we, we meet individuals whose lives are, are greatly impacted by government. And I think in our hearts, we long for good government. You know, we, we long for government that is just, that is fair, that is righteous, because when we don't see that in the world, our, our hearts break because we know the human cost of bad government. Now, world leaders come and go, but the election of a new leader is often still accompanied by you know, some sense of anticipation, some hopefulness. I think this sense of expectancy was eloquently expressed in a recent poem entitled The Hill We Climb by American youth poet laureate Amanda Gorman, and she read this out at the recent presidential inauguration. And interestingly, you know, I highlight this poem because there is a, a line in the poem that describes hope in biblical terms. She, she says in the poem, Scripture tells us to envision that everyone shall sit under their own vine and fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. Yes, indeed, Scripture calls us to hope for a coming ruler, a just ruler, a righteous ruler, a ruler who will bring about true peace and joy. But this ruler that Scripture calls us to expect is not an earthly political leader, but a God-appointed king who will usher in God's kingdom. And an ancient Old Testament prophecy speaks of a king who comes from this line of David. It says in Ezekiel, I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them, and he shall feed them 
and be their shepherd. So yes, a king is coming. And the question for all of us this morning is, will we receive him? Will we receive him? Since Luke chapter 9, we've been following Jesus on his journey to Jerusalem. And the journey is almost over. If you look in our chapter, chapter 19, in verse 45, Jesus enters the Jerusalem temple, which signals, which signals the end of that journey. He's arrived in the temple after making his way from Galilee in the north. And as the closer he gets to Jerusalem, the higher expectations get. Expectations are rising, and people are anticipating the arrival of a king who they hope will turn their lives around. You know, like them, we have hopes and dreams of what we think is the good life. We're all seeking a king. You know, we're all seeking a kingdom, some, someone or, or something that will bring this good life about. And the question is, what kind of king, what kind of kingdom are we seeking? In our passage, Jesus sets the stage for his arrival in Jerusalem. He's in Jericho, a town not too far from Jerusalem, about 25 kilometers, about a day's journey away. And before he arrives in Jerusalem, he prepares the way by showing us the kind of king that he is. He shows us the kind of kingdom that we should be expecting. He wants us to know him rightly. And for us to realize that He is the good King that we need, that we long for. Maybe we don't even know what we long for. But He is the good King that we should long for because He brings true righteousness, peace, and joy. So how do we enter His kingdom? Well, in our passage today, uh, we, we learn that en we enter God's kingdom by, one, returning to the King who has come to seek and to save the lost. And two, we enter the kingdom by serving the king, who will return with his kingdom. So that's the two main points for our time together this morning. We return to the king and we serve the king. So point one, return to the king, who has come to seek the lost. So verse one begins by telling us that Jesus entered Jericho, uh, Jericho was an important crossroads town, not too far from Jerusalem. So lots of goods and people passed through Jerusalem. It was a bit of a hub for merchants, armies, and pilgrims because it was so near to the temple. And we're then introduced to this man who lived in Jericho, this man named Zacchaeus. And we're told that he is a chief tax collector and he is rich, so really wealthy man. So a bit, of, a bit of background on tax collection in those days. Now, tax collection uh, in those days is different from tax collection now, right? I mean, regardless of what you think about IRS, you know, back then, tax collection was a corrupt business. In those days, tax collectors were corrupt. They often charged higher taxes than they were supposed to. They, they took a cut on every person they collected taxes from. And this is why this, this came about. The Romans would give out tax collection jobs to the highest bidder. So if you want to be a tax collector, you bid for the job. So obviously, the ones who bid the most got the job. And you can imagine having a system like this just encourages a lot of corruption. Right? Because if you bid so much money to acquire this job, of course you want to earn back your investment. So you earn back your investment, how? By charging higher taxes than you're supposed to. 
So this means, and listen to you know, this is important. This 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 means that Zacchaeus was not a good man. Zacchaeus was not a good man, not by any stretch. Zacchaeus likely got rich on corruption. Right, he was a typical corrupt official who just happily charged taxes to get lots of money for himself. And the fact that Luke tells us that he was rich and he's the chief tax collector, I think just underscores for us that Zacchaeus may have been the worst of the bunch in Jericho. So maybe not a man that you'd like to hang around, not a man that you'd happily invite for dinner and have a pleasant conversation with. No, if tax collectors were regarded as notorious sinners and outcasts because of what they did, Zacchaeus would probably be the, 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 the most outcast of the outcast. You know, he was someone who was willing to work with the Roman oppressors to enrich himself at the expense of his fellow people. Therefore, it's surprising we see in verse 3 that Zacchaeus was seeking to see who Jesus was. You know, maybe he was just being curious. You know, he had heard a lot about Jesus and he wanted to see for himself what Jesus looked like. Right? So he was curious about Jesus, but he faced two obstacles, the crowd and his height. <laughs> so the passage tells us that he was small in stature, so he was big on wealth, but very small in stature. So he couldn't really see Jesus because of that. So he couldn't squeeze through the crowd, and I think it was probably because the crowd knew who he was and wouldn't let him get past them. So he was stuck, right? So how, how do I get to see Jesus if I can't, if I'm not tall enough and I can't get to the front of the crowd? So Zacchaeus, probably being a resourceful man, decided to take matters into his own hands. So he runs on ahead and he finds a tree, a sycamore tree, which has long uh, branches that come out of the tree. So, you know, very good for climbing and perching yourself on if you want to get a better view. So he climbs up a sycamore tree, he runs ahead, climbs up a sycamore tree in order to put himself in a position to see Jesus as Jesus walked by. And I think Luke wants us to picture this scene in our minds, and it's a bit of a comical scene, because chief tax collectors don't, are not usually seen running about with their long robes. No, chief tax collectors, wealthy men, are not usually seen climbing trees. So it's a bit of a comical scene. You kind of see how Zacchaeus maybe embarrasses himself a bit in order to see Jesus. He's a bit like the blind beggar that we've come across in Luke chapter 18 at the end of the chapter where, you know, the blind beggar keeps crying out, you know, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And then people call him, can you please shut up? And he says, no, and he, he cries all the more, right? Son of David, have mercy on me. You know, he's, he's willing to embarrass himself to get Jesus' attention. So Zacchaeus, in the same way, doesn't mind appearing a little silly in his quest to see Jesus. So a little, you know, little encouragement for us here. You know, some of us here may be, may be just a bit curious about Jesus and we'd like to find out more. So my, my encouragement to us is, you know, please don't be embarrassed to ask about Jesus. You know, don't be embarrassed. Just put yourself out there and ask the person who brought you, perhaps. You know, can you tell me more about Jesus? Or you may want to get in touch with the elders who are at the doors or email one of us. We'd love to tell you more about Jesus. Don't, you know, don't be shy. You know, just ask someone. We'd love to tell you more about Jesus. But as often is the case, we, we soon realized that it wasn't us who started looking for Jesus. 
but rather He sought us and found us first. We have two young boys, and our older son is Zachary. So when Zachary was younger, I think he was about four years old at that time, so Claire brought him out to the hawker centre to, to, to buy lunch. So Claire was lining up. It was, the queue was quite long, so it took a while. So she was lining up, and then suddenly she turned around, and Zachary was gone. So another Zach. You know, Zach was gone. He was missing. So she was quite frantic. She started looking around, and she couldn't find him. And after about 15 minutes, she still couldn't find him. Right, so I wasn't with her, so she, she gave me a call and I immediately drove over to where she was. And so both of us started looking. You know, we, we looked for quite a while and we couldn't find him. So our anxiety was just rising and rising. You know, if, if you're wondering, we did find him. He's, he's here today. So we did find him after all these years. <laughs> Uh, so we, we looked for a while, and then finally we went to this shop, you know, this shop selling toys, and, and there he was. He was in the shop, looking at the toys, and, and he, was, he was completely oblivious to the f anxiety that he had caused us, you know, over the past at least half an hour. You know, and, and that's a little picture of, of Jesus finding us, right? You know, here we are, you know, we're, we're completely oblivious to, to, to the fact that we're even lost, and, and Jesus is just out there seeking us. You know, and he's seeking us. And we, don't even, we, and we don't even know that He's seeking us. So in the same way, Zacchaeus may have just wanted to catch a glimpse of Jesus. Maybe he was just being curious. I just want to see what He looks like. But, he, but here's the rub. Jesus intentionally walks to the tree. He stops at the tree. He looks up. And he calls out. And here's the amazing thing. He doesn't just say something generic like, hey, who are you? Come down. But he calls Zacchaeus by name. How did Jesus know Zacchaeus by name? I, we don't know. But Jesus knew Zacchaeus in this personal way. And he calls him by name. Zacchaeus, come down. Right? Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. You know, this, this is a familiar story to many of us, right? Those, especially those of us who've grown up in the church, maybe in Sunday school. We've heard this story countless of times. But it shouldn't stop us from being shocked by what is happening. You know, remember, this is a chief tax collector. He is public enemy number one. You know, he's probably the most distasteful person in Jericho that you can think of. He's a social outcast. But Jesus takes the initiative to move towards Zacchaeus. He draws near to Zacchaeus and even calls him by name. I think a sign of intimacy and affection. What does this tell us about this king, this king Jesus? He's a friend of sinners. He doesn't mind being seen with sinners. He doesn't mind being associated with sinners. It tells us that Jesus is the good shepherd who knows his sheep by name. As Jesus says in John 10, I am the good shepherd. I know my own. So comforting. I know my own. And my own know me. Why do we need a, why do we need a shepherd to come and find us? All we like sheep have gone astray. 
God made us for His glory, to know Him, to worship Him, and to enjoy Him. But we have all tried to live without God, every single one of us. We've gone our own way, we've pursued life on our own, we've made plans, we've chased after pleasure apart from God. And that's why it says in Scripture very plainly, no one seeks for God. No one seeks for God. We don't want Him in, this, in our life. We think we're better off without God. And we've thrown off His rule over us. We've rebelled against our Creator's loving rule. And because we've done that, the Creator has the full right to hold us accountable for how we have responded to Him. And we face His righteous judgment against us. And here's the good news. He doesn't leave us in our rebellion, but in His grace and mercy. He sent His Son Jesus to seek and find us, even though we were not looking for Him. He sent someone to find us, even though we were not looking for Him. And Jesus died on the cross in the place of guilty rebels like us. And He took God's judgment on Himself so that we can be forgiven and brought back to a God that we have been estranged from. And Jesus rose from the dead in victory over sin and death, securing our salvation if we trust in Him. And Jesus comes with that single-minded mission to seek and to save the lost. You know, it's, it's a bit like uh, Claire and myself when we were looking for Zachary. You know, that, that was the only thing we could think of, right? You know, we won't stop until we find Him. And, and that's just a very faint picture of the, the single-mindedness that, that Jesus has when He comes to seek and to save the lost. That's why He says in verse 10, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Our sins have separated and scattered us far from God, but Jesus has come to fulfill God's promise to gather His lost sheep again, to gather a people for himself, as it says in Ezekiel 34, as, we, as John read for us earlier in the service. Behold, I, I myself, God says, will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so, so will I seek out my sheep and I will rescue them. You know, one of the things you notice in Ezekiel 34 is the number of first-person personal pronouns, I. I, I will do it, I will do it. This is God's pledge to us. He will, He comes to seek us out. You know, this is the reason why Jesus says to Zacchaeus, I must, very strong word, I must stay at your house. You think, wow, Jesus is not paisay, right? He's not embarrassed. He's just invited himself to Zacchaeus' home. But, but the word must communicates the divine necessity of Jesus' mission. It's a, it's a very intentionally chosen word. I must stay at your house. I must seek and find you, Zacchaeus. It's the purpose for which he came. He's the good shepherd whose mercy reaches even notorious tax collectors and sinners. Friends, many of us are gathered here this morning and I, I can't see into your hearts, but I trust that at least some of us 
at least some of us seated, seated here this morning are struggling with sin. I trust that at least some of us are wrestling with guilt, with shame, with our brokenness, as well as the brokenness of the people we love around us. You know, sin, guilt, shame, brokenness, these are very real things. And, and some of us may be feeling the weight of that on our lives this morning. So, so this passage is for us, friends, to know that we have a good shepherd whose mercy reaches even the most notorious of sinners. You know, we are not beyond the reach of His grace, friends. We need to realize that. We are not beyond the reach of His grace. Regardless of how you labor this morning, you are not beyond the reach of Christ. So don't let a guilty conscience keep you from this good shepherd. Don't, don't kind of self-select and say, oh, maybe I'm not good enough. No, come to Him, friends. Come to Him. Turn to Him. Know that it is precisely Jesus, or so it's precisely sinners whom Jesus came to save. Right? He says, I didn't come for the righteous. You know, they, 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 they seem to be able to take care of themselves. I didn't come for those who think that they're okay. I came for sinners. So friends, if you, if you feel the weight of your sin and guilt, friends, you are someone whom Jesus has come to save. He shows us mercy because of our sins, not, not in spite of them, but because of them. And this is a key truth about Jesus that we need to really press on our hearts, that He shows us mercy because of our sins, not in spite of them. You know, I love the song that, and we'll sing this later on in closing, but the first stanza of this song goes, Jesus, friend of sinners, loved me ere I knew Him, drew me with His cords of love, tightly bound me to Him. Wonderful words, and we'll close with that in a while. So how should we respond to the King? who has come to seek the lost. Zacchaeus trusts and obeys Jesus right away. You know, he hurries down the tree and receives him joyfully, joyfully. You know, this is joy that flows out of a heart gripped by God's grace. And in, in this account, Zacchaeus is actually held up as a contrast to the rich ruler that we read about in Luke 18, verse 18 verses 18 to 30. Remember the story of the rich ruler? He, he came to Jesus with his hands full, right? He came to Jesus with his hands full of his good works. Right? He comes with, a, with what he thinks is a glowing resume, uh, an impeccable CV. And he brings this spiritual CV to Jesus and says, hey, look at my CV. Very impressive, right? Look at all the things I've done, all the ways I've served. Surely I must be good enough. So tell me, how can I, what can I, what, what other things can I add to this to inherit eternal life? My friends, if, if we come to Jesus with our hands full like that, how can we cling on to Christ? Our hands are too full carrying other things. Zacchaeus, in contrast to the rich ruler, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't come with a self-confident, self-sufficient attitude thinking that he can be good enough. 
Zacchaeus doesn't come with his hands full, he comes empty-handed. Indeed, because he's a chief tax collector, he has no righteousness of his own to speak of. So like him, we come to Jesus with open hands, letting go of anything that we have been clinging on to and trusting in rather than Jesus. We can't cling to Jesus when our hands are full. So let them go and cling to Him. And then you see the different outcomes, right, between the rich ruler and Zacchaeus. The rich ruler went away very sad. Very sad. Zacchaeus, on the other hand, is filled with joy. Joy. God's grace fuels our joy. And God's grace also transforms us. You'll notice how Zacchaeus calls Jesus Lord in verse 8. You know, again, unlike the rich ruler, he realizes that Jesus isn't merely a good teacher. He is king. He is Lord, someone worthy of his full allegiance. He wants to follow him. Zacchaeus was once a greedy, corrupt, self-serving tax collector. But now he is committed to following his Lord, this new king that has invaded his life. And he repents. You know, he repents of his selfishness and dishonesty. You know, in verse 8, he says to Jesus, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. No, Zacchaeus doesn't do this to earn salvation. No, it's a response to the grace of Jesus that he has just received. So yes, we are saved by faith alone in Christ alone, but the faith that saves us is never alone. It will produce the fruit of obedience in our lives. Jesus saves us as we are by his grace, but his grace, because he loves us, will also transform us. His grace doesn't leave us as we are, but He graciously grows us and changes us to become more and more like Him. So if He is generous, we become generous as well. We see that in Zacchaeus' life. So his resolve to give away his wealth is a response to God's grace. He bears fruit in keeping with repentance. Repentance begins in the heart but it will show itself in very concrete actions, attitudes, and words. You know, again, we see the contrast between Zacchaeus and the rich ruler. You know, the rich ruler chose riches rather than Jesus. Zacchaeus trusted in Jesus and gave away his riches. His radical generosity is evidence of a grace-transformed heart. Friends, this, this is the power of grace to transform. You know, the, the rich ruler relied on the law, but the law was a dead end, right? The, the, the law gives no power to love. The, the law gives no power to live differently. The law just shows us what God's holiness is like and shows us how we fall short. But the law gives us no power to change. Grace, on the other hand, changes from within. And you see that in Zacchaeus' life. You know, just, last, just this past week, 
you know, I was driving home with my family, and with Claire next to me and the boys back, and as I was driving home, the, the boys started fighting. <laughs> they started fighting over something. Uh, I think it was over Claire's phone, actually. <laughs> so they were both fighting to use the phone, right? So it went on and on, and the nearer we got home, the more annoyed I was getting, right? So I dropped them off at the foot of our HDB block, you know, I went to park the car, and I was, uh, as, I was went to, as I was going to park the car, you know, I was thinking of how, how I would throw the book at them when I got home, right? So just wait till, like, wait till Daddy gets home, and I'm going to throw the law at you, I'm going to show you how bad children you are and how you failed to obey, right? So I was all prepared to do that when I, when I would get home. So I parked the car, went upstairs, you know, was all ready to give them the speech. <laughs> so I went into the house, and lo and behold, they were sitting at the dining table together, and they were fine. They were having a very lovely conversation with each other. So, so, I, so I asked my wife, what happened? <laughs> you know, I thought they were fighting. So Claire told me, you know, my, my wife being the very wise one, <laughs> so she told me this is what she did. So, so they got home. And this is amazing, you know, it's five minutes. So I, I, was, I said to her after that, I should go park the car more often. So, so in, in fact, she, they, they got home and she sat them down at the dining table and she gave them, uh, I think it was bubble tea popcorn. <laughs> so she sat them down and gave them bubble tea popcorn and she said to them, you know, if, if you have received generosity, can you not be generous to each other? And, and she just said that. And that's the only thing she said to them. And, 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 and praise God, you know, and, and immediately I, I think their hearts just melted. And, and, and the older one she said, you know, said, said to the younger one, you know, I, I'm really sorry, you know, can you forgive me? And the younger one said, yeah, I'm sorry too, can you forgive me? So amazing what bu bubble tea popcorn can do. <laughs> but, but, but I tell that little story, I mean, it's, I, I think that's just a picture of, of the power of grace to transform. You know, we, we think that we need the law. The law has its place. But in this story, we, we see the power of God's grace to turn someone from a notorious sinner to a generous follower of Jesus. You know, Zacchaeus actually goes beyond what the law requires in giving away his wealth. That's more than what the law requires. It's a very practical example of how following Jesus should change how we use our money. Following Jesus should change the way we do our jobs. Right? So, so go attend the equip class on work. <laughs> Find out how working for King Jesus matters. It's a, very it's a very practical outworking of our new life in Christ. And Zacchaeus shows us the kind of king Jesus is. He's merciful and compassionate. He's the good shepherd who comes to seek and to save the lost. You remember in chapter 18, Jesus says you know, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And then his disciples ask him, then, then how? Then who can be saved? And Jesus says, what is impossible with man? impossible with man is possible with God. Jesus is able to do for us what we are unable to do for ourselves. 
And Zacchaeus understood that. And he received salvation. It entered his house that day. And will we also receive the Good Shepherd? The second point today is serve the king who will return with the kingdom. So we've, we've heard of how Zacchaeus has come to Jesus and received <clears throat> salvation. So a sinner has been saved, but surprisingly, not everyone is happy. You know, in verse 7 of our text, we, we see how when some saw it, they all grumbled and said, he has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. You know, they grumble about grace, which maybe reveals more about the condition of their hearts than they realize. You know, trusting in our own righteousness will often lead us to treat others with contempt. Grumbling about grace reveals the spiritual pride that exists in our own hearts. You know, we look down on others. We think they don't deserve grace, which is a bit of an oxymoron. We think they, they, they shouldn't be saved because they are not good enough. They're not like us. So we grumble when others receive grace. And the problem with self-righteousness is that it not only prevents others from receiving it not only prevents ourselves from receiving grace, but it also shuts the door on others. Tax collectors were excluded from the temple and synagogue. They were regarded as too bad, you know, in order to draw near to God. Therefore, it is astounding to hear Jesus call Zacchaeus a son of Abraham. Right? You also are a son of Abraham. You know, how can an irreligious tax man be a part of the people of God. You know, this tells us that belonging to God's people doesn't depend on pedigree or performance. We are saved by faith in Christ alone, by God's grace alone. We enter the kingdom by trusting in the King, not our own works. And that's why Jesus tells the parable. Right? He, he, he tells the parable because some suppose that the kingdom of God was to appear Immediately, And in telling the parable, he's actually correcting two wrong expectations of the kingdom. One wrong expectation is the Jewish belief that when the Messiah comes, he will overthrow the Romans and set up an earthly kingdom. And the Jews expected to be a part of this kingdom simply because they were physical descendants of Abraham, excluding tax collectors, of course. Right. So, so, so the so this wrong expectation basically is that the kingdom is for good people like us. Right? The kingdom is for good people like us. The bad people like tax collectors are out. So Jesus has to correct that expectation. The, the second wrong expectation that Jesus corrects is that the kingdom will come all at once. Right? This is the expectation that the kingdom comes and we get our best life now, the end. So Jesus corrects that wrong expectation by telling us the kingdom comes in two stages, as we've heard in earlier parts of Luke's gospel. The kingdom has already come, but it has not yet come in its full glory. And there will be a period of time of waiting, of serving the king faithfully. There will be a period of time when the faithfulness of God's people will be tried and tested. This is the time in which we live. So this parable is for us as we grapple with these maybe wrong expectations of the kingdom. So the parable begins with a noble man going into a far country to receive a kingdom before returning. And before he leaves, he calls 10 of his servants and gives each one one mina. So one mina is around three months' wages. So each one gets about three months' wages. And their job is to do business 
until the master returns. And the application for us is pretty clear. This is how we should live as Jesus' followers until he returns. He's entrusted to us our mina, which is you know, maybe our time, our health, our talents, our skills, our opportunities, our different spheres of life, you know, be it school, work, church, friendships, dating, marriage, parenting, retirement. You know, all these things have been entrusted to us for us to not to selfishly consume for our own benefit, but to use as a faithful servant to serve our master. We are stewards, not owners. So the master entrusts these things to us and says, be faithful until I return. Use all these different opportunities that you have and be faithful. And the master will call us, account, call us to account, just like the nobleman with his servants. So he calls the first servant and the first servant has done well, making 10 minas from the original one. The master commends him, well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. The second servant who has made five minas is rewarded five cities. And in this interaction between the master and his servants, we're meant to see the master's generosity. Now, the servants have only done what they have been commanded to do, but the master repays them lavishly. The reward of cities is disproportionate. It's disproportionately generous compared to the relatively small amounts of five and ten minas. This is a picture of the abundant grace of King Jesus. When we serve Him, we come to Him humbly and we say to Him, we are unworthy servants. But praise God that Jesus doesn't treat us like unworthy servants. He treats us like sons and daughters and He lavishes His inheritance on us. You know, this, this should really spur us on to serve Him. Right? We serve a Master who is generous and good to His people. You know, a third servant is then brought before the Master and this servant has done nothing with the mina except keep it away, wrapped in handkerchief, and he, did, he didn't even put the money in a bank where he could earn interest. He didn't even bury it in the ground, which would have been safer. And so this servant has been rather foolish and irresponsible. But you know, the, the amazing thing with this servant is that he, you notice how he turns around and he blames his master for what he's done. He says to this master, you know, you've been a bad boss. Right? He said, I was afraid of you because you are a severe man, and you take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow, verse 21. You know, but the real problem is actually a lot deeper than that. The, the servant's words, you know, listen to his words, his words reveal his heart towards his master. This is a servant who neither knows nor trusts his master. This servant is motivated not by a love for his master, not by honour or respect for his master. This servant is motivated by a self-centred desire to keep out of trouble. That's what motivates him. Fear and just self-preservation. There's no real love for his master. 
Now, if, if you want to know what legalism looks like, this, this servant typifies that. This, friends, is legalistic obedience. Right? It's like God says, I do this, so I do this law. Then God better be happy because I, I did it. But there's no love for God. There's no real desire to, to, to honour Him, to serve Him, to follow Him. It's just very transactional. Friends, this is what legalistic obedience looks like. And legalistic obedience does not please God. So we might think we're fine because we're giving God what He wants. But friends, if, if our hearts are not drawn to Him in, in worship, in love, then He's not pleased with that. So what, what is our heart attitude towards King Jesus? You know, why am I serving Him? Am I motivated by His grace and love? Or is my obedience merely grudging? Just, just a way to keep out of trouble and to keep myself in His good books. Why am I serving King Jesus? And the Master pronounces judgment on this servant. He says, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. To everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Now, Jesus doesn't allow us to remain as Sunday Christians, just going through the motions, just giving him the bare minimum. Right? That's a dead end. Now, Jesus wants us to give ourselves completely to him. Not, because, not simply because we have to, but because he's good and he's worthy. So why wouldn't, he want to, why wouldn't we want to pour ourselves out for his sake? Because he is a good and generous master. To do nothing is to be unfaithful to Jesus, who calls us to offer ourselves completely to him as a living sacrifice. Why? Because we have received mercy from him. This parable should move us to consider our heart attitude. Do we want Jesus to be our king? You know, there's this other group of characters in the story, the nobleman's citizens. Do not want him to rule over them. But when the nobleman returns, he will punish them for their rebellion. You know, many Jews in Jesus' day thought they were entitled to a place in God's kingdom because they say, hey, we're good people, we're religious people. Surely we belong to your kingdom. But Jesus says to them, you cannot enter the kingdom if you will not receive the king. No kingdom without the king. So if we reject Jesus, what remains for us, friends, is a fearful judgment when he returns. World leaders come and go. And the hope expressed in Amanda Gorman's poem can never be realized by an earthly king. Our hope is not in political change ultimately. Our hope is in King Jesus. The kings and kingdoms of this world promise paradise, but ultimately deliver disappointment. Only God's kingdom will last. Only His kingdom is worth giving our lives for. When King Jesus returns, where will we stand before Him? And friends, we need to know that Jesus is not a heart master. He invites us now to come to Him for rest, the rest that our souls and our hearts so badly need. He says to us, Come to me, all who labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus is the good shepherd who has come to seek and to save the lost. So friends, will we return to this King? Will we serve Him? Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we thank You and praise You. You indeed are a good God to us. And Father, we confess that we have often turned away from You. Father, we have often doubted the goodness of Your Son. We have chafed against His rightful rule over us. And many times we have sought to throw off His rule. We have rebelled against Him, seeking our own way, thinking that we, thinking that we are better off doing things as we see fit. So Father, as we come to You, we come with hearts broken because of our sin. And we come with hearts in need of healing. We come with hearts in need of forgiveness. So Father, as we come, we pray that You would humble us. We pray that You would convict us of sin. We pray that Your Spirit would show us not just our sin, but show us the loveliness of Christ that we would run to Him, that we would not hesitate to turn to Him because we know that He loves us. So Father, draw us near now in this moment. Help us to come to You, to come to Your Son, recognizing that He is the good King that we need. He is the one who promises true peace, true hope, true life, and true joy. So Father, we pray that You would work in our hearts draw us near to you. We thank you for the Good Shepherd in Jesus Christ. We pray that you would fill us with your Spirit, draw us to him. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.